Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm representing the Fools Guild. Joining me is Liz from the Cool Guild. Hey. And Danny from the Guild of Gilding. Gold-plated everything. <laughs> Our book this month is Men at Arms, 15th in the series and 2nd in the Watch series. This is the story where Discworld continues to be politically neutral by focusing on such light-hearted topics as racial prejudice and gun violence. Yeah, some good fluff and filler. Uh, neither of you were there for the Guards Guards episode, is that correct? Oh yeah, I think that's right. I had scheduling conflicts. Because this one is like very continuity-driven and directly follows on from that one, it's not a great one to start with, but we could spend that time sort of uh, recapping a little bit of how you two felt about this like, sub-series. I actually really like the, the Watch series. I think the characters are really different in that they have like external motivations that I feel like a lot of the characters don't always necessarily have that kind of keep them together. And because it's such an ensemble thing... The like, contrast between each character is just really fun to see. What I expected from Men at Arms was very much not what I got. I don't know what I expected, but by the end of the book, I gotta say I'm pretty darn... I'm not disappointed in how it went. That sounds a lot more negative than I actually feel. I was uncomfortable to start with, mm -hmm. ah. which was the point, I assume, and then it got better as it moved along. Hmm. That's fair. I think I can really see where you're where you're coming from on that because I was kind of in a similar position and I didn't even really read the back cover of this book. So I had no context for starting other than knowing it was part of the Watch subseries. I was tracking this one about as closely as I was tracking the last, but I mean, I've never been good at mysteries, so as long as it gets solved in the end, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> well... Men at Arms is a mystery, but it's, mm -hmm. like, also a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I just finished Altered Carbon, seasons one and two, so I've definitely been in a mystery kind of mood lately. Yeah, and I've been playing Zero Escape, so I'm used to, like, crazy continuities going on. I, I don't recommend playing the second Zero Escape, though, at this point in time, because it is about a pandemic. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's load up the trivia stolen from its glass display case by the secret extra sister from her adjacent glass display case. <laughs> Clocking in at just under 85,000 words, Men at Arms was published in 1993 with German and Dutch translations in 1996 and a French translation in 2000. The 1996 audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, lasts 9 hours and 45 minutes, with the 2005 abridged version, read by Tony Robinson, coming in at 3 hours and 14 minutes. The story was adapted for the stage by Stephen Briggs in 1997. In the 2004 Big Read survey, Men at Arms placed number 148. A variant of this book's cover art was used as the art for the 1999 compilation book, The City Watch Trilogy, which includes this story along with Guards Guards and Feet of Clay. Those three stories are also being combined by Stephen Briggs into a new play, Murder in Ankh-Morpork, which apparently uses the core plot of this story and will hopefully premiere in September 2020. The brief mention of a camera containing a brownie is a reference to the first mass-produced camera, the Kodak Brownie, which was introduced in 1900 and named for its inventor, Frank Brownell. 
Sergeant Cullen's line, remember, let's be careful out there, was the catchphrase of the 1980s police drama series Hill Street Blues, while his speech about truncheons is almost certainly inspired by Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. In the same vein, Vimes is talking about a bloody awful cup of coffee is an inversion to similar moments from Twin Peaks, while his line, they call me Mr. Vimes, is a reference to the film In the Heat of the Night, spoken by Mr. Tibbs, and also referenced by Pumbaa in The Lion King. The Alchemist Guild attempting to create artificial ivory for billiard balls is a direct reference to the work of John Wesley Hyatt in the 1860s and was a major step in the development of modern plastics. The Fool's Guild painting their members' faces onto eggs is a real-world tradition dating back to the 1500s, since a clown's makeup is trademarked and unique to each individual clown. Men-at-Arms picks up where Guards Guards left off. We open with Carrot Iron Founderset writing a letter home, telling his adoptive parents that he has been promoted to Corporal of the Ankh-Morpork Nightwatch. As part of his new duties, he has been helping Sergeant Fred Cullen train the new recruits. I like the fact that Carrot writes home dutifully as a character trait, because it seems like very like good old boy kind of thing for him to do. Kind of a heartwarming opening. One of the new recruits is a recurring character, Detritus the Troll, who appeared briefly in Guards Guards, and had a prominent subplot in Moving Pictures involving his romance with another troll named Ruby, which I mentioned here because I don't remember if we talked very much about them then. Ruby does get mentioned in this story, so we know that their relationship is doing okay, even if we don't get to see her. Good. I'm happy for them. Ruby seems to be a good influence uh, for Detritus. And it's nice to see, like, the things that happen in other books have a, a very present, like, continuation. There are two other recruits. A dwarf named Cuddy and Angua von Überwald, who is a... W Sorry, I have to take this. One sec. Yes, everything is in place. We will rendezvous at the embassy in 36 hours. Tell Ludwig to bring the nail polish. Sorry about that. Where was I? Meanwhile... We meet Edward Deeth at his father's funeral. The Deeth family, once prominent aristocrats, have fallen on hard times. Edward blames this on Lord Vetinari, the patrician of Ankh-Morpork. After a chance encounter with Corporal Carrot, Edward decides that the only course of action is to bring back the monarchy. And as a grad student at the Guild of Assassins, he knows exactly the way to do it. Because the monarchy always works. While that's happening, Captain Samuel Vimes, head of the Night Watch, is preparing for his retirement and wedding to Lady Sybil Ramkin, dragon lover and richest woman in the city. Sybil is worried because Chubby, one of her rescue dragons, has gone missing. See, I'll put it out there now. And I remember, I actually remember something from the first episode where you were telling, uh, saying how uh, the earlier books get contradicted a lot. And I'm going to miss many of those contradictions, but I did not miss this one with the dragons. In, in Color of Magic, dragons didn't exist anywhere except imagined. So quick recap for anyone who missed Guards Guards. On the Discworld, dragons are pitiable dog-sized reptiles that can barely fly and are prone to exploding when they're scared, excited, or it's Tuesday. You know, the ideal pet. So, the Night Watch is going to lose their captain, uh, there's a mad monarchist on the loose, and the racial tension between the dwarves and trolls is coming to a boil. The whole 
points of tension. For some reason, I could understand far more, not understand, for some reason I could handle the, the dwarf troll feud a lot more than I could the humans interacting with said feud or with the dwarves and trolls at all. Mm. Because that was just plain uncomfortable. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And like you said, it is like kind of the point of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that anything that's going to kind of talk about the topic of racism or prejudice in general, really, is at some point you're going to have to kind of show those not so great and uncomfortable moments to show why they're bad. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's just sometimes it makes it a little hard to stomach it and get to, you know, the satisfying conclusion of it. And like, the three of us are white. There's no like obfuscating that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Mexican, so. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm very, I'm half white though, so I, I'm very light skinned in that. Yeah. Sorry for making the assumption. I didn't actually know. It's all right. That one I'm fine with. <laughs> Denny and I definitely are very white, and so, like, uh, we don't face the same, like, I'm, like, just digging myself into a hole here. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. I get where you're going, though. As a white person, we can, we can be a lot, very uncomfortable acknowledging racism mm-hmm. and don't want to confront it because that means confronting our own guilt. Yeah, that, and I tried to think it through while I was reading just because that's something I feel I should think through every so often like why am I made uncomfortable why am I made uncomfortable by this and is it a good thing that I am or not and most of the times yeah because I can do something with that discomfort but in this case I think it was like it wasn't something I was expecting to see although I probably should have in this genre because Pratchett has touched upon it in other books but like to actually see it to this extent is like no oh god no why did they have to say that Oh god, why? On the other hand though, I have to say it was a very quick and direct way to make you sympathize with some characters and absolutely hate the rest. But I think the thing that this book actually does really well around handling all of that is that it doesn't really excuse anybody from some amount of prejudice. So most of the characters will say something a little derogatory about another species or other type, like multiple other species or the undead. And it frames those as that was not okay. And the characters are aware of that while also being like, they don't know better as not great as that sounds. Like they just haven't had to confront those feelings and really think critically about their thoughts at that moment and the the guard is definitely not exempt from that those are they're some of our most uh recurring examples but yeah this is the book that really clarifies the nature of discworld racism which has been referenced in other stories the biggest example is the cultural animosity between the dwarves and trolls because dwarves are miners by nature and trolls are made of rock and the humans are shown to be racist towards everyone else making jokes about how the trolls are dumb the dwarves eat rats and the undead are not really people, quote-unquote. Yeah, we, we definitely gained sympathy towards the undead in, in Reaper Man, so. The previous books kind kind of help with not naturally siding with the humans because we've already had experiences with the other races. I don't know if I was going anywhere with that or just making a statement. <laughs> eh, it's fine. We cut back to Edward de Eith as he runs into Beano, a clown who has been taking a stroll outside of the Fool's Guild. Partially by accident, Edward kills Beano and dumps the clown in the river. 
Oh, Rick Bino. Poor Bino. Bino got beamed. Using Chubby the Dragon as an explosive, Edward breaks into the Assassin's Guild Museum and acquires the greatest superpower of all. I did get permission from Linkara to use that clip, so... Nice! Meanwhile, in preparation for the wedding, Lady Sybil instructs her family's lawyer, Mr. Morcombe, that she is transferring all of her property to Captain Vimes. This comes in handy when the Watch goes to the Assassin's Guild to investigate the break-in. When Dr. Cruces, the Master of Assassins, asks why Vimes is stomping around like he owns the place, Vimes reveals that he does own it. Oh, I must have missed that part. I missed a few lines and then uh, read others entirely wrong. There's actually a kind of a, a couple funny bits about misreading things, but I'll get to that later when they happen in summary. This book is jam-packed, so I, we all miss a few things here and there. I was reading quotes to my mother every other page, and she was just like, oh my gosh, just the stuff he could pull out of nowhere that just made sense even though they didn't make sense. Oof. It's a little weird that upon like Lady Sybil and Vimes getting married, that she's like here you own everything I owned and you can just have it but at the same time I kind of appreciate that it's there because for some people that is something that they do want you know and I, I, I don't think the book treats Lady Sybil as less valid for wanting it that way yeah in in in, in my reading anyway it uh it seemed that they were treating her as I know what I'm doing I'm making my own decisions at basically any point in time there's a possibility that she wants to transfer it as a way of giving Vimes like some level of power that he has not had because she knows that he grew up poor. True, because he really wouldn't be taken seriously by aristocratic society, whereas she still has her name. Uh, transferring all that also to him in its entirety would give her more leeway to focus on her dragon business than managing the estate. Exactly what I was thinking as well. And I also think it kind of gives Vimes something to do once he moves there, because I imagine she probably saw that he the watch has been his entire life up to this point, and so now he has another thing he can like manage and take care of. I do agree with your point that it's I don't have a good word for it, but it's like not great from a progressive perspective. Yeah, but there's like rationale behind it. This is also as good a spot as any to talk about one of the best bits in this book, the boots theory. Oh yeah! As a quick summary, the idea is that the poor stay poor because they have to spend more money than the rich do. The example in the text is that a $50 pair of boots can last for a decade, while a $10 pair will give out in a couple months. This means that someone who can only afford $10 boots will end up spending much more money over time. There is plenty of larger discussion about the economic value of the theory elsewhere. But in the context of our talk, I find it interesting that this is presented as something Sam Vimes thought up on his own, rather than a statement by the narration. Partially, this tangent exists to introduce Vimes' character quirk of being able to tell where he is in the city through the feel of the cobblestones, but it also demonstrates that he's the kind of person who thinks about these things. He's observant, he deduces the whys and hows of what he sees, and he readily notices injustice. This is the kind of person who can do genuine good in a cynical world. Yeah, and I think they set up a lot of those similar traits in Carrot, and we have spent a lot of time with Carrot knowing that he is good and he believes in good and he's always going to do the good thing. 
But Vimes is a little bit more complicated than working through alcoholism is a serious beast. Yeah. But I appreciated seeing that, you know, like Carrot, he's walked around the city a lot. And he's noticed a lot of things about the city that a lot of other people probably haven't given the time or day to. And because of that, he has a unique perspective on the city and its people. I'm willing to bet that that that's, no, not even willing to bet. That's how he got to the position that he has. He's captain of the Night Watch. That's the stuff he needs to know in order to succeed in that position. And the, the watch follows him readily. Somebody without all those qualities stacked together wouldn't last terribly long in the guard. They'd make a mistake that he wouldn't because of his observations. And I think the differences in character that you guys are describing, they could each be strong characters that fit in a story well, but they'd be different stories. You know? That seems fair to say. True. While Vimes is talking with Dr. Cruces, I'm sure I'm botching that name, as well as this next one, Angua meets a key witness to the crime. Returning from moving pictures, it's Gaspode the Wonder Dog! Oh boy. Real quick, Gaspode's shtick is that he can talk, but people don't believe that he's talking when they hear him. Yeah, gotta say I was really confused when he showed up because I was 90% certain at the end of moving pictures all the animals lost their ability to speak. But they did cover that in this book, which I'm glad they did because I would have been incredibly confused. <laughs> I appreciate Gaspode as like a character who's just there kind of like as a hint when the other characters need him and maybe they don't know that they need him and maybe they don't know that it's him giving the hint but that's kind of the function he serves gaspode's greater role in the narrative of this story is to be something of a foil for angua he claims to have a loving family but chooses to wander the streets as a smelly flea-bitten stray in doing so he illustrates what she would be if she continues to emotionally isolate herself I have to say, in Moving Pictures, I really appreciated Gaspode. He was an excellent little piece to offset the rest of the mood of that story. He provided his own perspective and it meshed well. Not to say it doesn't, because he certainly fits in this book as well. I just don't appreciate his personality as much. Perhaps because he's a, he's exhibiting dog traits using human speech, and just, it comes off badly. Mostly, I think, the flirting with Angua. Yeah, yeah, he does flirt with her a lot, and it's like... Please stop. <laughs> please stop, guest mode, please. It's never going to happen. The assassins refuse to cooperate with the Watch, so Vimes goes on patrol with Carrot. They talk about the city, and how people say it was better with kings, but Vimes disagrees. And he doesn't like how things are now, but he's very much opposed to monarchy. At this point in the story, I was pretty firmly convinced that Vimes just didn't like a lot of things. Yeah, that's kind of his character. Yeah. He's he's pretty choosy about what he likes and what he doesn't like and has formulated opinions about them, which is admirable in a way. He's a grouchy old fart who doesn't like stuff. You can say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like this scene with Vimes and Carrot because like I mentioned Vimes exhibits a lot of similar qualities that Carrot does um, and I think that this scene kind of shows how those similarities bond them together and how maybe not like super explicitly I think Carrot does kind of look up to Vimes on a lot of things and trusts what he's saying. Absolutely. I think that formulates a lot of what Carrot thinks and how he responds to events that happen later in the book. Definitely. Meanwhile Dr. Cruz's pays a visit to Lord Vetinari, 
and informs the patrician that the gone has been stolen. He says that the guild will retrieve it, and that Vitnari should tell Captain Vimes not to interfere. This was one of the points where I misread. Well, I mean, depending on what you think you misread it as, I don't know if you did, because I think it's kind of indirectly stated that Vetinari is poking the bear and trying to get Vimes to keep investigating, even though he, on paper, should not do that. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely what Vetinari is doing. I managed to pick up on that, only the first time I re- was reading it, throughout the whole book, I had to do double takes because I kept reading Gone as Gnome. This <laughs> <laughs> is like, oh yes, and then the gnome. I'm like, is this about garden gnomes or gnomes actually a thing or? Just a fully loaded gnome. Yes. <laughs> That's a really delightful mental image. Gnomes off the rails. <laughs> It's garden warfare. Um, but yeah, with this particular interaction, I totally skipped over the line where he kind of waves Cruces away, and I totally missed the part where he fell down. I thought he just, at the end of that confrontation, Vetinari was displeased with Cruces trying to order him to call off Vimes, that he rung the little bell, summoned his quir- his clerk, and was like, ah yes, he has fallen He's fallen down the um the 50-foot shaft in the garden. I thought he basically just had the head of the assassins assassinated. So it was mildly it was marginally less entertaining, but I'm glad I reread that section before the rest of the book otherwise I would have been incredibly confused. <laughs> <laughs> Missing a bit of important context. Since the gun is in disrepair, it gets brought to Bjorn Hammerhawk, the master crafts dwarf. Once Bjorn finishes fixing it, the weapon goes off, and not long afterwards, the Watch discovers Bjorn in the river with a massive hole in his chest. And also conveniently making me forget there had been a body in the river before. In accordance with Dr. Cruz's request, Lord Vetinari tells Vimes to stop investigating the theft. If the law needs to get involved, it will be in the hands of Captain Quirk of the Day Watch. Absolutely not. The rest of the Night Watch, disturbed by the gruesome death, go out for a drink. During a conversation with Carrot, Angua reveals that she has lodgings with Mrs. Cake, the psychic we met in Reaper Man, which was also the story that formally introduced the undead as part of the Discworld. Since that book, Mrs. Cake has started renting out rooms to various members of the undead community. Carrot doesn't realize that this includes Angua, assuming that she was hired to represent the minority group of women. I think this scene is where it particularly sticks out that nobody in the book is kind of free from their own prejudices because here Carrot says some not-so-wonderful things about the undead, not realizing that Angua is part of them. Yeah. The misfortune people who pass can unfortunately face. We talked a little bit about werewolves being a type of undead in the Reaper Man episode, but it's worth discussing at least a little here. Personally, I think it makes about as much sense as vampires or zombies, since they're all conditions that get transferred through biting. I think there could be a little bit more to the dead aspect of it than what we see in, in this story. Now, having the undead as a persecuted minority almost falls into a common trap where fantasy racism is motivated by legitimate fears. 
But that's not the case here in Discworld. The undead basically keep to themselves, and there's no justification for the way humans treat them, which is much more accurate to real-world bigotry. And I think that the undead are kind of supposed to represent a, like, non ethnic minority more like i kind of in my head was seeing it as like you know the like gay trans lesbian communities where it was called one thing and then you start adding other groups to it and then that term doesn't exactly fit anymore because it's expanded outside of that meaning but the term's still kind of used because that's what everybody knows you know and also i guess when you have undead people are like well, they used to be human, but they're not anymore, versus pre and post coming out to people who are incredibly bigoted. So we've mentioned werewolves in general. Let's talk about Angra. For the first quarter or so of the story, we mostly see her through the perspectives of Carrot and Sergeant Colin, and their thoughts are largely about her physique and gender. She does take umbrage with the casual sexism of the watch, but once the narrative starts letting us into her head, the focus changes to how being a werewolf impacts so much of her life. This ties into the theme of prejudice by illustrating how it affects people who pass as, quote, normal. There's a constant sense of guilt about hiding some aspect of who she is, coupled with the fear of being found out. It seems very authentic to persecution based on things like religion or sexuality, like stuff that is not immediately visually recognized. Admittedly, the rest of Ango's character is a little weak, her personality is vaguely badass action girl, and she doesn't have a particularly strong motivation beyond a hint of wanting to find somewhere she belongs. I think part of that is just that this is her introduction, and she doesn't have much room to grow. Yeah, and I think we do get some really great nuggets of her personality. I just I think she would do well in a story where there maybe is fewer characters, and or maybe the external plot is uh, not the primary focus necessarily. It's a lot about the interrelationships between the characters. We did have a we did have a large cast with little screened this go around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same thing with uh, how Granny Weatherwax always takes up the focus of the witch books. Mm-hmm. So much of the watch stories are focused on vines. Mended Arms also adds nuances to Carrot's character that weren't really present in Guards Guards. For one, he has the same ideas about diversity that you see from people complaining about cartoons on Twitter. We do also learn some more positive things, like how he has a genuine love for the city's history and knows basically everybody by name. But ultimately, Carrot is still less interesting as a character than he is as a vector for other people to react to him with the superhuman charisma and everything, which is more conveyed through people thinking about him to themselves than through what he actually does and says on the page. It's still there, just like, it's kind of an informed trait. Yeah, I definitely think for sure. I do think that, unlike in Guards Guards, we get a a little bit more of who Carrot is and how he thinks in this one. Lawful good pushing what lawful means. (laughs) Yeah, I have uh, a, a very similar opinion to that where... Unfortunately, a lot of his personality is informed. Uh, his honesty, his simplicity, his incredible trivia knowledge of Ankh-Morpork. But I feel like that also serves to make him as unassuming as he needs to be for later events to have the impact that they do. He's like, oh yes, he's just the charismatic fellow. You can you can kind of brush that aside. Yes, he has power, but he seems to be just a little too plain to use it. 
yet. So, Vimes, still full of rage from his meeting with Vetinari, joins his fiancée for a dinner party with much of the aristocracy. They spend that time complaining about the state of Ankh-Morpork since the guilds gave working-class people a say in the operation of the city, as well as various racist remarks about the trolls and dwarves. Vimes, who has also been shown to make disparaging remarks about the other races, is incensed by this flippant dismissal from people who never actually meet those they're mocking. Unable to say what he really feels, Vimes pretends to enthusiastically agree with the rich racists, until Carrot arrives with new information about the investigation. That was a portion that kind of went over my head a little bit, because he kind of just kept pushing it and pushing it until the the one lord in question had to keep making worse and worse remarks to keep up with the, the remarks he was putting forth and had to keep agreeing with him. Until his wife called him aside and said that you were said that he was making fun and making that uh, aristocrat look bad, which I certainly am all fine with. The the man's a jerk, but I didn't understand how he was embarrassing that noble. I'll probably have to look over that that part again, but it was something that entirely went over my head and I would greatly appreciate more takes on that scene. But also it it served to me to show the differences, I guess, between different kinds of prejudiced people. Like you have the the aristocrats who are just they don't know what they're talking about they're just going with what other people say because that's what they say and they don't want to look bad and all that sort of thing and then you have people like vimes who feel almost entitled that like i have i'm allowed to make these kinds of remarks because i know these people i've met these people i know what they're like quote unquote which while i don't agree with either of them you kind of side with vimes more simply because he has more experience with the people in question but he's still not right Either version of, like, a racist person isn't, like, great or okay, obviously. But seeing them interact is certainly something. Yeah, they're, like, it's like, there's levels there. And I think part of where some of the, like, dealing with racism stuff falls flat in the books is that, and maybe I missed this, and if I did, please correct me, but it doesn't necessarily feel like all of the characters have to, like, confront the, their assumptions and I think Vimes is that's especially the case yeah I feel like though at least with Vimes he will come to terms with that eventually especially with how the book ended yeah like he, he will have to come to terms with that and I at this at that point do trust him not to like let anything he thinks or feels be in the way of the success of the watch especially with carrot giving him tips you can make an argument that vimes is not actually basing his i don't want to say that he's like not actually being racist because it's like there's definitely some race-based stuff in his thought process but vimes has been shown to be like very much extremely cynical about everyone that's just the extent of his general curmudgeonliness being a factor in how he treats like all the people of the city. I'm not trying to excuse it as like him being like, I'm not racist, I hate everyone equally, because that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> at that point, at least you hate everyone equally, right? Hating everyone equally doesn't result in everyone being hated equally, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that does, and it kind of like clicked five seconds after it was out of my mouth, but I would, I would <laughs> still prefer somebody who just is a cynic to everyone about everyone rather than 
targeted because then you at least know what to expect with them. It's also clear from the language of this scene that Vimes hates these rich people way more than he does any like troll or dwarf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also one thing that I was that I thought was going on in this scene but like rereading didn't really support was that Vimes was like making statements about the rich people like trying to frame it as agreeing with them talking about the dwarves and trolls but it doesn't quite click the way i wanted it to what this scene like does a lot of is it makes attempts at conveying certain things but i think like vime's portrayal about his relationships and thoughts about the other groups of people is that it's a little more complicated and he's not really succeeding at being an accommodating person and i think because his like interactions on this i think are the most complicated something that i realized during the reading of this the prejudice against the dwarves seems to be very much inspired by real world racism especially the eating habits like dwarves eating rats and mm -hmm. like especially reference to them eating dogs during this scene it's inspired by the way that anglo-centric viewpoints reject people eating different animals in different parts of the world mm -hmm. the trolls on the other hand the prejudice that they face is more inspired by disability than it is by race mm -hmm. yeah while we've been talking i did kind of have the idea that from what i was saying earlier about uh the one lord being embarrassed by some of the things that vimes was saying I think maybe, uh, just kind of thinking back on it, perhaps he was embarrassed because Vimes was taking what he was saying and throwing it back in his face. Just like, ah, yes, you're really saying this, aren't you? And he was forced to kind of agree with it, like, yeah, that's what I was saying, and just kind of feeling embarrassed about it. Whether or not he actually believes that what he was saying was bad or not, it's... I think that's a very solid point. I actually hadn't considered it that way. I'll likely have to check the text. Because Vimes and his like relationship with the other groups of people in this scene are more complex, I think, it ultimately le means that having like a good, nice, solid feeling resolution is a little harder to get. And I think that's part of where my discomfort around this comes from. Also, just like racism isn't something that you can just solve in one scene or in one book. Yeah. True enough. So, Vimes and Carrot go to Mr. Hammerhawk's smithy and discuss the circumstances of the dwarf's death with his family. They blame the trolls, which Vimes points out makes no sense, but the dwarves won't listen to a joke like the watch. As the two guards investigate the workshop, Carrot explains dwarf funeral traditions, such as how a smith's tools are melted down after he dies, and how dwarves are buried with weapons to protect them from anything they might encounter in the great beyond. Eventually, they find two clues, a piece of paper covered in alchemical symbols, and, lodged in the wall, a lead pellet. After they leave the workshop, one more clue reveals itself. The corpse of Bino the Clown. Cuddy and Detritus are assigned to investigate the paper, which they bring to the Alchemist's Guild. Meanwhile, Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobs, you know, they're still here, they go to investigate the Fool's Guild. The gatekeeper mentions that Bino was up and about yesterday, but Nobs reckons that he had been dead for several days. The plot thickens. The plot ends up in the river and doesn't sink. The river thickens. <laughs> the river thickens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Soon enough, Vimes gets a demonstration of what the gone can do, as his room gets obliterated by bullets. He's unable to catch the attacker, 
but learns more from a gargoyle and some discarded shell casings. Gargoyles are an interesting breed of troll that's adapted to the city and has the the water spout. Mm-hmm. Did you two know that that's the difference between a gargoyle and a grotesque? Really? Oh, no. The grotesque is, in the real world, this is not a Discworld thing, is a stone statue up on gothic buildings. A gargoyle is a grotesque that has a water spout running through it. So the gargoyles in the animated Hunchback of Notre Dame aren't actually gargoyles, they're grotesques? I mean, they're also grotesque. True. <laughs> but they aren't in the proper <laughs> classification. <laughs> It's been a long time since I saw that movie. It's shortly revealed that Vimes wasn't the shooter's only target. Carrot, eager to show off Ankh-Morpork's history to Anga, brings her to the Beggar's Guild. There, they learn about Lettuce Nibs, who was shot because she was mistaken for Queen Molly, the chief beggar. This book has a like, really nice effect of getting to show us the like different like, cultures of all the guilds. Especially since they're so secretive to the outside. So the main joke of the Beggar's Guild is that the higher-ranking members are obliged to beg for the things they would have if they were of the same level in any other guild. So while a normal beggar asks for pennies, Queen Molly has to beg passersby for a mansion. There's some sort of point here about class structure and social stratification, but ultimately the joke doesn't quite land for me. I think it lacks a solid punchline. Yeah. Meanwhile, Lance Constables Cuddy and Detritus have begun to overcome their racial animosity, and Cuddy is teaching Detritus how to count by tens. During this, they spot a man who runs away from them and chase that man into a freezing warehouse where he locks them inside. As the temperature begins dropping to a fatal chill, it also makes Detritus's silicon brain run more smoothly, granting him super intelligence. I think this is just like a fun kind of like character detail thing to be like, oh yeah, the trolls are like... Computer people. Yeah, <laughs> but they're also like a group of beings not from around places like Ankh-Morpork necessarily, so they're better suited for a different climate. Now, this aspect of troll physiology does contradict a scene in an earlier book, but this is more interesting, so who cares? (laughs) I will briefly say that this scene does equate being smart with using fancy words and statistics, which is not a useful metric for gauging intelligence, but it's in service of highlighting the difference between the detritus we're used to and him at his full potential. So I get it, but if anyone out there is working on a story with a similar scene, I'd encourage you to think of other ways to show a character getting smarter. I can kind of appreciate, though, that it was made mention that he was... It it wasn't so much that he was getting smarter. He was in that he was, like, suddenly able to process numbers faster, unlike the druid computers elsewhere on the disc. So you see what I was talking about with trolls being functionally disabled. In Ankh-Morpork, they are in a place that is not built to accommodate their specific needs. And so they're forced into the role of second-class citizens, the same way that, for example, someplace without wheelchair access doesn't really mean that people who are physically disabled can get around. I didn't get the, like, connection to disability when I was reading the book. But, like, as we're going through this and we're talking about all these scenes, like, it makes more and more sense in my head. So thank you for, like, bringing that up. I did appreciate how he described the chill taking a hold of detritus similar to a computer in a cooler environment rather than out in the sun a lot as 
overheating will slow it down, as instead in chill, his brain thinking faster. To me, that kind of seemed more like his being able to think quicker and voice it was telling less of him getting smarter, but more of being able to sh what he's capable of. Like, it, it was mentioned earlier that uh, troll counting in this book is like one, two, three, one many, two many, etc, etc. So that they, they just use numbers differently, but they still have them. Therefore, it stands to reason that all the stuff he was doing in the chill, he was doing with more traditional numbers rather than the ones he's used to. Oh yeah, there's a lot of detritus counting throughout this book in... I forget the actual term for it. I think it's base four, like base two, sort of the way that computers count. Yeah, I was I was very proud of him when he was doing his counting because he was so pleased with himself. Like, yeah, you go. You go, good buddy. You're doing so good and you're so happy. Mm -hmm. So Detritus uses his, I was going to say expanded brain power, but improved brain efficiency to throw Cuddy out of the warehouse and the dwarf promptly finds the owner to rescue him. Together, they go looking for a doctor to make sure that Detritus is okay, but they end up smack in the middle of two mobs, one each of trolls and dwarves, both of them gearing up for a fight. While fleeing from the riot, the two watchmen fall into the ancient Ankh-Morpork sewer system. Meanwhile, Vimes gets confronted by Captain Quirk of the Day Watch. It's revealed that Vetinari is planning to combine the two watches and Vimes will be relieved of duty. Around here is where Vetinari talks with the Gon's inventor, Leonard of Quirm, whom he keeps imprisoned in a special room of the palace. Discworld Da Vinci, I don't know if I like you as much as our historical Da Vinci. <laughs> I don't know, like, it, it's probably because of the, uh, the whole mad genius part getting thrown into your face. Yeah, I, I can't quite say what about it, but something about him just kind of didn't mesh well with my preferences of character types, I suppose is the easiest way for me to put that. The words aren't coming easily today. I appreciate that in this scene where Vetinari and Leonard are talking, Leonard, like, he's aware of it and he feels regret, I think, about having created the gun, but he was just like so consumed in the process of creating that he didn't think about the consequences of it until it was too late. I appreciate a Discworld Leonardo da Vinci because that is one of my favorite historical figures. I think it's because I personally take so much pride in learning things about those fields, uh, biology, psychology, and art, that seeing this Leonard not be entirely yeah not not just in not entirely there but also not entirely happy with the things that he can do kind of upsets me a little bit because i personally am very proud of my own abilities but that is kind of what makes him truer to the historical figure is that da vinci like famously felt that he did not really succeed in a lot of the things that he wanted to create. Yeah, I I, uh, I understand that. I can relate to that feeling of, of never enough on a pretty personal level, but at, this, at, at least with a fictional character, it just kind of hit differently, I suppose. Again, that's just my personal opinion. Leonard is an interesting addition to the cast. He's the Discworld equivalent of Leonardo da Vinci, like you said, right down to the name. He's an inventor and artist of unparalleled genius, 
but he has zero concept of how most people think and act. Leonard and Vetinari are more or less complete opposites, which is why he's the only person Vetinari trusts. Now, an earlier scene introduced Bloody Stupid Johnson, whose infamous ingenuity is a recurring gag throughout the series. We never meet the man himself, but Johnson's fantastically flawed designs crop up all over the books. With Leonard, he forms an interesting dichotomy. One of them gains phenomenal success through complete incompetence, while the other is a master of many skills, but lives in isolation and obscurity. And with The Gone, it's clear why Leonard's designs should be locked away. Johnson's work is dangerous through unpredictability and flaws, but when Leonard makes something dangerous, it is terrifyingly effective. Would you count the Mona Og as dangerous or simply amusing? Mm. <laughs> Would you count a like painting whose teeth follow you home as dangerous? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I hadn't considered it from that perspective, but just tacking the name Og onto it had me slightly fearful for my life. <laughs> so, Captain Vimes drowns his sorrow in alcohol, and Carrot and Angua bring him up to his room. There, Angua finds a sheet of paper with the names of several women and amounts of money. She tries to joke about this to Carrot, but it's revealed that this list is in fact the widows and orphans of various ex-watchmen, and the money is how much of Vimes's paycheck he donates to them. There's no official pension plan for the families of officers, so the captain pays for it out of pocket. Hence his $10 boots, I suppose. And this is a nice scene because it shows that even though Vimes is a curmudgeon old man, he still really cares, and he still wants what's right to happen and if he has to do what's right then he's gonna do it it did really make angua look like an idiot though without much room for her to apologize and have her apology acknowledged i think part of that is the way that she was insulting captain vimes to carrot because carrot obviously idolizes vimes it was a bit of a punch to the gut when angua did have that revelation and especially like at that point i was of the opinion that carrot would say it and then understand that she truly was like oh my gosh i did not mean that if i had known i never would have said it but then again there are also situations where like even though if you had known you wouldn't have said it that doesn't make it a good thing to say in the first place so it kind of makes sense mm -hmm. i had thought carrot would be a little bit more kind in that situation but it played out how it did and that's that yeah it says a little bit about everybody actually carrot angua and vimes especially so captain quirk arrives to tell the night watch to stand down and also to be really blatantly racist quirk has arrested the troll coalface for the murder of mr marcombe which is completely unjust and definitely going to start a race riot but there seems to be nothing the watch can do even after Cuddy and Detritus return to show the others that, in the sewer, there's another corpse of Bino the Clown. I don't think I've, I mentioned, but at this point, especially when uh, when Cuddy and Detritus are, are down in the, in the tunnels, and even before then, I was really just, like, getting into their whole putting aside their differences and, like, becoming friendlier, to, especially with uh, Cuddy sort of teaching him how to count traditionally. Well, like, traditionally for non-trolls. For non-trolls, yes. But at the same time, just like, yes, thank you. I've been waiting half a book for this. 
They're overcoming their cultural animosity. They're growing as people. I love it. Yes! Character development in, in such a fashion cannot be understated. As Vimes goes to Lady Sybil's estate to begin his retirement, dwarves and trolls around the city begin to riot. The carrot gets an idea. They may have turned the watch into civilians, but as civilians, they have the right to form a citizen's militia. To do so, they break into the city armory, and Corporal Nobbs demonstrates hitherto unseen knowledge of weaponry to get them all properly equipped. I am very much a fan of the trope of one of the more unassuming characters just coming up with, ah yes, I know a lot about this, and proving incredibly useful, at least for a moment. My, uh, my other comment was... Yet another instance of Carrot's lawful good pushing the boundaries of lawful. Yeah, he just he just needs somebody to push the loophole into the forefront so that he can use it. Did I read it correctly? Does he literally just kind of carry a law book on him? Yes, he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I, I think it's like established in Guards Guards that he just started reading that as as soon as he started joining the watch and just so he knew every law in the city he's great i like him during this scene carrot comes out with this wild line we practice policing by consent in ankh-morpork now the circumstances uh, undermine the integrity of that statement a bit since he's talking to someone who is being actively threatened by the rest of the night watch but as angua observes carrot is completely serious the Watch should act for the good of the public with the public's permission. It's a novel concept if you're used to a world where the police exist to violently enforce the status quo. Yeah. And in a story about race, you have to think about the police. Yeah. I'm glad they're on the side they are in this telling. This makes me excited to see more of the Watch subseries. The idea that, like, you know, the Watch does good for the people because the people are like entrusting them to do good and it's like there are a lot of like cool interesting possibilities open there you know especially with carrot who takes serve and protect very seriously i for one am going to have a field day comparing the watch to particularly seasons one and two of the penumbra podcast the uh, juno steel story which is more about the uh the rogue detective like your noir tropes but also about his um, inabilities to do enough good as part of the police. It's a pretty thrilling clash with the themes in this book in particular. From the armory, Carrot and the militia return to the Fool's Guild for a further investigation. Carrot has, he has so many points in bluff, it's not funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So to set the stage for our listeners, Sergeant Colin, right? Yes. He explicitly tells Carrot they can't do anything if the head of the Fool's Guild doesn't want to talk. And so if the Fool's Guild, the head of the Fool's Guild says, nope, I'm, I'm not talking to you guys, you need to leave, they have to do exactly that. And Carrot decides to dance around that fact a little bit and air quotes threatens if Dr. Whiteface doesn't want to talk then Carrot and the other watchmen will do exactly as they've been ordered to do in this scenario and just casually don't mention the fact that that means leave respectfully. (laughs) Although then that's sort of what I was talking about with like police stories framing people like exercising their rights as villainous behavior which is... Yeah, 
And I think that's totally fair. It's just the only reason that this scene, I think, plays more funny for me and removes some of that discomfort is because knowing Carrot, it's like he wouldn't actually do anything, you know? And so it's just playing off of that perception, but there's no actual real threat there. Calling for a lawyer is your right, and it is far too often framed as an admission of guilt in, in TV especially. It is not. It is a, it is a right. So, in the Fool's Guild, the militia discover a secret passage into the Assassin's Guild. <laughs> and Carrot figures out what happened on the night of the theft. An assassin killed Bino the Clown and stole his identity to get away with stealing from the assassins. I really like how this played into the uh, the trivia about the clown's faces because the, the Fool's Guild especially are so, so far into their role that to see a clown not in makeup, not in their designated makeup, is essentially being faceless and they can't, and because that is their face, they can't even imagine somebody else stealing somebody else's face and wearing it. It's as disgusting an idea to them as it would be in a literal sense to us. This is just where the like uh, the whole mystery part of this book I think is really coming to a head. It's like we're seeing them put all the clues together and you know and we can feel that we're almost at the end and you get to like see the whole conspiracy kind of come into clarity which is always like the super fun part of mysteries. So this is like a really fun section of the book despite the tension. To investigate further, Angua secretly changes into her wolf form and peruses the Assassin's Guild building pretending to be a dog. When she finishes snooping, or snoopying, she finds that her watch uniform was stolen by the beggar Foul Ol' Ron, and sets off to retrieve it, Gaspode in tow. But their hunt is interrupted by a meeting with Big Fido and the Dog Guild. The Big Fido stuff is kind of a weird tangent, He's this little poodle who wants to form an army of dogs and overthrow humanity, and he inspires other dogs to join him by giving speeches about wolves, speeches that Angua knows are full of exaggeration and misinformation. Ironically enough, I feel like those exaggerations and such are ones that we as people would also believe. Absolutely. I don't know. I know it, this section is just kind of weird because it doesn't feel like it necessarily relates to a lot of what else is going on at this moment. So it kind of feels like this weird B plot that's getting a lot of screen time. So I, 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 I don't know. I didn't particularly love it. I think there could be some like really interesting things you could do here, but maybe we needed to be introduced to the idea of the dog skills a little bit earlier. I mean, it does get mentioned briefly by Gaspode fairly early on, but you're right. It's a weird level of not in the plot enough and yet kind of taking up too much screen time. I spent some time thinking about what it means. The thought I came down to was what Big Fido represents in the story is the worst of what humanity can be, especially when it comes to the other. But it's all given the form of an animal. He doesn't really factor into the plot, yeah, but his presence is mainly about reminding the reader of the end result of hatred fueled by delusion. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially like in the context of the story. I'm just gonna like totally tangent really quick because I didn't really get it until I started thinking, it, until I said what I said and started really thinking on what came out of my mouth that, yeah, he really is 
especially when you consider the core of his delusions, that dog's ancestors are inherently better than mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. else. The world is overrun by humans. Mm-hmm. Big yikes. <laughs> Especially when you have Angua there who's like, yeah, no, wolves are nameless and the only reason the pack works so well together is because they are entirely in harmony with each other, not just kind of thrown together and aggressive. While Angua and Gaspode try to extricate themselves from Big Fido's cult, Carrot adopts a novel strategy for dealing with the riots. He conscripts the rioters into the watch. <laughs> That's one way to go about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You are the law! I'm a little amazed at how much everybody who he conscripts just kind of goes, okay, I'm in the watch now, even after they like fight with it for like a minute or two. They just eventually go, okay, I guess, yeah. I feel like part of that had to do with detritus. I love that he just like suddenly turned into a drill sergeant. That was hilarious. Angua and Carrot return to the watch house at around the same time, and it's revealed that the corpse in the sewer was none other than Edward de Eith, meaning that somebody else has the gone. That was kind of hinted at a little bit earlier, but at the same time it played off very well as a plot twist. So thanks to prompting from Gaspode, Carrot and Angua share a romantic evening. However, the moonlight reveals Angua's secret, and she flees. Carrot figures out that Gaspode can talk, and enlists the dog to help him find her. Fair enough reactions on all parties? On the one hand, obviously I think we all side with Angua on this specific thing that happens, but you can't really blame Carrot for going for his sword when he sees a wolf in his bed. Yeah, I think that's a a thing that prompts a very instinctual level of panic. Angua's reaction is definitely valid as well, and this seems to confirm all of her fears. Mm -hmm. Because Angua spends so much time anticipating getting rejected, and so... The instant she senses any hint of Carrot not liking who she really is, then she bolts. Like, I don't blame her. This is all perfectly understandable, but they're not talking to each other, and that's the fundamental flaw. Also, an officer shouldn't be sleeping with their subordinates. Very true. Very true. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, technically still Captain Vimes prepares for his wedding. The service is being held at Unseen University, and we get a few cameos from various wizards. Then, Lord Vetinari arrives, and from high in the University Tower of Art come bullets. One hits Vetinari in the leg, while another hits the carrot. As in the corporal (laughs) carrot, not whatever you were thinking. This is essentially the beginning of the end, the, the start of the true final act, final chase, etc. Angua senses that Carrot is in trouble, and she and Gaspode rush off to save him. However, they are intercepted by Big Fido and some of his vicious dogs. Gaspode uses his power of speech to command the other dogs, giving Angua time to run. Big Fido chases after them, but can't keep up, and eventually his blind fanaticism results in the poodle falling to his death. But Big Fido wasn't the only one. Cuddy, who had been stationed on the Tower of Art and was too late to spot the shooter, meets death as well, but he refuses to move on until he has a decent burial weapon. Cuddy's death is really out of left field. Unless I'm mistaken, this it doesn't even happen on the page. And in a Discworld story, it's unusual for such a main character to die like this. Yeah, you're totally right about like every part of this. It I don't know, it felt like a thing that happened because 
the stakes needed to be raised and and like that's fine that's how stories work essentially so i'm like not hating on that at all but it felt like oh okay we need to make this threat really real and make it personal so cuddy ended up being the fall guy mm-hmm. womp, womp. sorry <laughs> <laughs> it was an, another one of the points that went over my head when they said that you know who was up on who was up on the tower oh it was cuddy and then there was that moment of oh wait and the rest of the book had kind of led me to believe that there was something wrong with having him specifically up on the tower like there was no way it could be him on the roof i wasn't expecting him to have died the way it was phrased kind of made me feel like there was something there that i had missed entirely like a logical step that's fair yeah, usually we see when characters die. This is also unusual because major protagonist characters don't typically die in the middle of the story in this series. Of the three new recruits, Cuddy is kind of the most expendable. Yeah, because like, we have history with Detritus and Angua and Carrot have a thing going on. So He had the least invested in the established members of the Watch because the most establishment he had was with Detritus, who was also a recruit, and of course it had to be a recruit that they would have that they would have killed off, and not one of the ones who had been just conscripted because we don't care about them yet. I can see why, but I don't have to like it. The shooter escapes from the tower into the sewers, where Vimes confronts him. It turns out to be Dr. Cruces, the chief of the assassins. The doctor reveals that Edward had convinced him that Ankh-Morpork needs a king again, in the process revealing to Vimes that Carrot is the rightful heir to the throne. Dr. Cruces fires on Vimes and Carrot, but the bullets are intercepted by Angua. This moment I had a lot of dread and sadness, I think. We've already seen one of the main characters die. Yeah, and so I was just like, oh, is this going to really be this kind of book? But I, I do have to, like, ask, it's like, do you think, like, Vetinari knew that Dr. Cruces was involved in this capacity? Not that he just didn't want, like, Vimes snooping around. And that's part of why Vetinari pushed Vimes to keep investigating? It's difficult to say. I don't know how much stock I'm putting into his deductive abilities, but he seems to be a person who knows where things go. So he might have been tipped off a little bit if he was able to find out that the the reasoning behind most of this was because the perpetrator wanted a monarch back on the throne and the Assassin's Guild is mostly made of nobility and he's the head of the Assassin's Guild, and how he kind of snapped at Vetinari to bring Vimes under heel as if he could control the patrician. He certainly had reason, even without knowing that it was, like, a monarchy-based scheme, he would have had reason enough to distrust Cruces. Yeah, I feel like he must have had, like, had some idea that, like, Cruces was involved with something shady, you know? And maybe he didn't necessarily know what, but... He knew that he needed to have somebody poking around in the situation because, you know, there was something going on. While the assassin reloads, Vimes manages to take the gun. But the weapon's power is not just in its ability to kill. On the Discworld, ideas have form, and the gun demands to be used. 
or more accurately, it is a weapon that uses its wielder. This part definitely played with the whole rhetoric of how does a gun kill? Is it the device or is it the person behind it? In this case, it's the device. The device has essentially malice encoded in its creation. I think there's something also related here to the idea of like power corrupts, you know, like the gun is this powerful weapon. And so as a result, it corrupts whoever wields it. Especially since this is, it has a modern design, like it had, it had rifling in the barrel. And that was something that wasn't in the earliest, earliest pistols and stuff. It has range that again, like you didn't get on early pistols and muskets. I think it could, it definitely fired further than a than some of the earliest muskets so it was definitely more power than any one person could handle giving the gun a will and also in an earlier scene the gun spoke to dr cruz's we now know it actually repeats the nra slogan guns don't kill people people kill people people with guns can kill more people than people without guns vimes grapples with the gun his sense of duty fighting with his morals but Carrot manages to intercede. With barely a word, he kills Dr. Cruces and destroys the gun, then brings Angua's body back to the watch house, while Vimes returns to his wedding. There's a great quote in here. Just like cutting it down real quick. If you are at somebody's mercy, pray that they are evil, because an evil person will savor that moment and give you more time. But a good person who wants to kill you will just do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much I actually agree with that idea, but it definitely informed one or two of my D&D characters. It's an interesting idea, if nothing else. It's a thought experiment. I knew he was going to do it, but then because there's no way he couldn't. But then at the same time, I'm like, ah, well, this is nice. So now the gun was many things. One thing it wasn't is silver. Angua is okay. Good. Yeah, I had a real like sigh of relief here because I was just really worried and it feels like a kind of a dumb thing to worry about that Angua is going to be fridged, you know, but this moment was like, okay, that's not going to be the case. I didn't need to worry about that. They played it up to like he brought her body to the morgue. He cleaned up her fur. He went upstairs and like was really somber. And then she walked in and you're like, what? Oh my god, of course. You're very much primed to accept that she dies in this scene. But it's completely obvious in hindsight because, like, you never get the scene of death meeting her. I don't know how many readers were fooled the first time they read this story. I didn't because I read some of these books out of order and read a later one first. But, like, that's not any function of me, like, being smarter than the text. Yeah, no, you just prior experience. Presumably after this scene, Carrot and Angla have a talk where Carrot learns to be a bit more respectful and empathetic for the undead. I'd like to see that on the page, but I can imagine it would have killed the pacing. That said, this part of the story does suffer a little bit from the fact that it's kind of framed as a minority group earning Carrot's respect through the actions of an individual when you shouldn't need a specific reason to treat others with decency. I think you're kind of on point there. Two days after Vimes' wedding, the Watch holds a funeral for Cuddy. Of course, a proper dwarf burial includes a burial weapon, and it's not stated, but very heavily implied, that in Cuddy's casket, courtesy Carrot, is the remains of the gone. Now, this raises an interesting question, and I hope our listeners will indulge me in a bit of continuity, as will you too. It was established in Reaper Man that destroyed objects can have ghosts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So imagine if Cuddy had the ghost of the gone. And further speculation, 
what happens when you shoot someone with the ghost of a bullet? Like, would it kill them without a trace? Or, more interesting, can it kill their soul but leave the rest of them alive? Or could it just be a weapon that can kill ghosts? On the opposite end, what if it can't be reloaded and Carrot sent Cuddy to the afterlife with basically a weird hollow truncheon? <laughs> like, these aren't questions that the story answers, but I invite everyone to share their own ideas. Mm -hmm. The Magnus Archives has a take on what happens if you get shot with a ghost of a bullet. After the funeral, Carrot reports to Lord Vetinari to discuss the new terms of the watch, now that they've added 50 new recruits thanks to the militia conscripting. Mm -hmm. Vetinari also promotes Carrot to captain, which Carrot accepts on the condition that Vimes be made commander, a position that also makes him a knight. Lady Sybil is pleased, because in her eyes, this ratifies the nobility that she sees in her husband, while also letting him continue the work that is so important to him. And so, as Gaspode flees from his family, Commander Vimes takes charge of the dwarves, trolls, undead women, and yes, the men at arms. <laughs> so what did you think? I really like this book overall. Like I said, I've been consuming a lot of mysteries lately, so this is very nicely like fitting into my interests at the moment. It ended well. Yeah, and it felt very just for Vimes, whose ending seemed kind of the bleakest throughout the entire book. Because he, like, very clearly loves the watch. He he uses it to define part of who he is. And he wasn't going to have that, so how does he define himself anymore? And I think he was, like, really struggling with that. And it definitely impacts how he acts in the book. And so I think this is kind of like a happy medium where it's like, he's not in the watch proper, but he's still involved and, like, gets some of that in his life. And there's definitely room for more that I am excited to see. I would have liked it if this story was more about Angua, even if some of the stuff that is, like, focusing on her tends to be a little bit exploitative with her, like, having to take off her clothes to do stuff. And also that a lot of her story ends up revolving around Carrot, which on its own would be a lot more frustrating, but the story uses it as a catalyst for both characters to grow as people. Angua becomes a bit more confident and hopeful about her future, while Carrot begins to understand how his biases can hurt those around him. I won't deny that Carrot gets the lion's share of the actual growth in this exchange, but you can argue he needs it more, since a lot of this has to be about Angua's introduction, while well, Carrot's an established character and needs to grow to be in the story. But in fact, I'd also say that Carrot realizing he can unintentionally hurt others is a major part of why he turns down the throne at the end. I definitely think you're like totally hitting it on the head with that. And I do wish Ongo was a bigger character in this, but I don't know. I, I appreciate what we did get to see of her at least and the growth we did get to have. Speaking of the throne, the symbolism inherent in what remains of the throne of Ankh-Morpork being gold plating over incredibly rotten wood, what did you two think of that? It kind of served a twofold purpose to me. That Vetinari showed that to Carrot really kind of cements that we, we know that Carrot has that, has that capability and that people were actually kind of nervous that what would Carrot do if he were a ruling type. It really cemented the two of their beliefs that a ruler should be a common person or should be able to do common work because what else are they going to do? They're only really needed as a leader in times of emergency, which is what Carrot did in this book. 
On the other hand, it also brought my mind back to the patrician's, quote, throne, a wooden chair at the bottom of the steps. So technically he does have a throne without the gold foil plastered all over it and without being above everybody else. I really, really liked his final line about the consider what politician means or where it comes from. Where does it come from? Uh, same uh, as Carrot was saying, it also is derived from polis, which just means city. So therefore a polis man is a man of the city, and a politician is someone who is well-versed in the state of the city. There you go. Don't nobody say we never taught you nothing. I, I, I specifically <laughs> had to uh, had to look that up today. Yeah, etymology is, uh, is really fun. Mm-hmm. I've recommended the History of English podcast to you, right? It's a podcast all about the development of the English language. Ooh, no, I don't think so. Let me write that down. You're, you're going to love it. And so I know we've talked a lot during this whole discussion about prejudice and racism and stuff. And I want to say to that person on Reddit who said that they couldn't listen to our podcast because we spent so much time virtue signaling, these books are political. And not just in the way that, like, all media is political. These are explicitly political. They are about things. And, like, I wouldn't call it so much virtue signaling as, like, we're talking about our genuine thoughts and feelings about the story. It's not so much an English class as we're saying this is what you should think and this is what you should believe. We're just kind of putting out our own thoughts and opinions. And that's, that's basically it. We're not saying this is how you should think. This is just how we think. And I think part of that is, like, you can engage with media or people however you want. I know there are pieces of media that I don't particularly enjoy consuming because something about it just doesn't, like, sit right, even though if at the core of it I know it's a good product saying a good thing, just because, like, the message doesn't jive with me. And, like, I think that's fine. And if this is that for somebody else, then that's also fine, you know? But I think it's just like acknowledging that and just kind of moving on. And in the name of moving on, do we want to move to the ending of this this episode? Sure. All right. So the Weird Sisters podcast, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We have a Discord server where you can chat directly with us. Also, all the episodes are shared to my YouTube channel. And it's all made possible thanks in part to the support of our Patreon patrons. Every episode, we give a shout-out to one randomly selected one. This month's shout-out goes to Jessica Michaels. Thank you, Jessica. Hello! Thank you, Jessica. Also thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music. To my co-hosts here, Danny and Liz, for joining me on the Talk Talks. (laughs) (laughs) Always happy to be here. And thanks to you, the listener. Join us next time for soul music. Ooh. Yes. I'm excited. Liz, would you be so kind as to hit us with a favorite footnote? Murder was, in fact, a fairly uncommon event in Ankh-Morpork, but there were a lot of suicides. Walking in the nighttime alleyways of the shades was suicide. Asking for a short in a dwarf bar was suicide. Saying got rocks in your head to a troll was suicide. You could commit suicide very easily if you weren't careful. Until next time... The turtle turtle moves. moves.